Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Picture yourself surrounded by grass and trees under a bright blue, early autumn sky. There's music playing, and you're close to the riverbank of one of the prettiest villages in Ontario, where the best emerging and established writers in Canada have gathered together for 25 years now. They're reading from works geared towards adults, teenagers, kids, and families, and you are engaged, laughing your head off, maybe even moved to tears. This is Sunday afternoon at the Eden Mills Writers Festival, located just 10 minutes east of Guelph. Join us for our 25th anniversary, September 13th to 15th, in Guelph and Eden Mills. For more information about our accessible all-ages schedule, buying tickets, and shuttle service from Guelph, visit EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca. Creative Control with Vish Khanna. Hello there. On this episode, you're going to hear from three very gifted voices. They're each uh, an acclaimed author in their own right, and they'll all be appearing at the Eden Mills Writers Festival, taking place from September 13th to 15th in Guelph and Eden Mills. A little bit later, you'll hear from Thomas King, who lives right here in Guelph, Ontario, and is a renowned author. His latest book is called The Inconvenient Indian, A Curious Account of Native People in North America. It is both a history and, well, I guess it's a casual history on some level. I I was going to say that it's partially fiction, but it's not. It's just told in a a casual tone. You'll hear more about that later. Uh, And then, before that, actually, before Thomas, you'll hear from uh, Sarah Elton, whose new book, Consumed, Food for a Finite Planet, is out now and is uh, really, well... Inspiring. I suppose inspiring is the easiest. It's a little frightening as well, but it's also inspiring. You'll hear from Sarah, and uh, we'll figure this out. And kicking things off, you'll hear from Joseph Boyden, whose latest novel, The Arenda, is coming out soon. All award-winning people. I try to hold my own with them. You'll see. Uh, Before we get to it, I just want to point out that uh, earlier this week, I sent out my newsletter, and I said there would be three episodes uh, this week, which is unusual. There's normally two episodes a week for the podcast. Turns out, there will be a fourth. If you check back tomorrow, you'll hear a conversation between myself and Thurston Moore, whom you might know best from Sonic Youth, but uh, he's also in a band called Chelsea Light Moving that will be playing in Hamilton 
on Saturday, Toronto on Sunday, and Montreal on Monday. So just a heads up, Thurston Moore will be on the uh, podcast soon. But that's the future. Let's get to now. Let's get to now now. Close to 20 years now, Joel Plaskett has been writing music that's smart enough to keep you listening to songs with meaning waiting to be discovered, while also rocking you into enough of a frenzy, ah, you just want to make a little noise. Halifax's favorite son returns to Guelph after a triumphant headlining set at the 2012 Hillside Festival, and he's coming back with his awesome band. Yes, the Joel Plaskett Emergency play the River Run Center on Friday, September 13th as part of the 25th annual Eden Mills Writers Festival. They'll be joined by the fantabulous Jim Guthrie and also Bedini Band, whose Dave Bedini will be doing a reading from his new book, Keon and Me, My Search for the Lost Soul of the Leafs. For tickets and more info about this accessible all-ages concert, please visit the River Run Center box office, riverrun.ca, and edenmillswritersfestival.ca. Joseph Boyden is a celebrated Ontario-based author whose first novel, 2005's Three Day Road, about a pair of Cree soldiers fighting in World War I, received a number of awards and was shortlisted for the Governor General's Award for Fiction. His second novel, 2008's Through Black Spruce, was ostensibly a sequel to Three Day Road, following the next familial generation depicted in Boyden's first book. Through Black Spruce won the prestigious Scotiabank Giller Prize and was named the Canadian Booksellers Association Fiction Book of the Year. On September 10th, Boyden's third novel, The Orenda, will be published by Hamish Hamilton, a division of Penguin, and it may indeed round out a trilogy he began eight years ago. He appears at the Eden Mills Writers' Festival on the afternoon of Sunday, September 15th, to read from his latest work. And here now to discuss this further is Joseph Boyden. Uh, Hi, Joseph. How are you? Very good. How are you doing, Vish? I'm well. Where in the world are you? I'm in New Orleans, which is my uh, my home. Um, other, my family's all in Ontario, but my wife and I have lived here on and off for many years. Right. I, my understanding is you split your time between New Orleans and, uh, and Ontario. Is that correct? I do, yeah. I'm up home once a month, it feels like, lately for sure. And uh, Yeah, but this is like my creative base down here. What, uh, what brought you to New Orleans? Um, graduate school way back in 92, even before that, I was actually a roadie for a punk rock band called Bazooka Joe's band out of South Carolina when I was a teen. Mm. And, uh, we came through New Orleans when I was probably about 19 and July climbing out of the van, six stinky guys into the mouth of an overheated dog is what it felt like. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, just fell in love with the city immediately and, uh, and uh, never looked back, you know, I'm a real, I'm a bit of a traveler i'd love to travel between uh you know i love having a home in ontario and a home in new orleans get bored of one i go to the other you know right and, and music is something that uh is a draw for you you're a big music fan a big big music fan yeah very eclectic taste so um uh i've been lucky enough to make a lot of friends who are 
what I think amazing Canadian musicians as well over the years. Oh, great. A lot of, yeah, a lot of Canadian musicians are big readers, as it turns out, which is pretty nice. Yeah, it works out very well, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. My, uh, my cursory understanding is that your new book is, is a historical epic, a, a culture clash wherein the notion of a person's soul or, or essence is kind of up for debate. Can you tell us more about the Arenda and what inspired this story and if, if I'm on the right track? Yeah, well, the Arenda is, is, is certainly what I consider a, a big kind of juicy historical epic. It's, it takes place in the mid-1600s in what is current-day Georgian Bay area among the land of the Huron Indians, and it's about the first contact between the Europeans and the natives of the area, um, the Europeans being the Jesuits sent in as a kind of a spear tip to the uh, the French developing New France and uh, the Huron people and their enemy, the Iroquois. The Haudenosaunee. All right, so what exactly inspired uh, you to write this particular story? Well, I, I was uh, the product of Jesuit high school. I went to Braybuff College School for four years before I finally managed to get myself kicked out. And then, uh, But I also spent much of my childhood and my youth, um, my most formative years on Georgian Bay and our summers and often in our winters on Beckwith Island and Christian Island. And, and this is where the... Jesuits and the Hurons fled in the midst of the troubles with the Iroquois people. Um, and so, you know, this is a story that I think comes from both sides of who I am. Right. So when you delve into history as a novelist, you potentially have a lot of material to work with, but you're also on this, you know, this tricky terrain where memory and revisionism can be dangerous. How do you deal with this in your work? Well, the nice thing about being a fiction writer is that you... You pay attention, obviously, and you you have to certainly obey certain rules of history and certain dates and everything else, but you get to play a little bit, too. And so I had fun playing with the Jesuits and with with their view of the world at the time, which is all very much documented in the Jesuit relations and their views of the First Nations people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's dealing with it is, is you know, number one, I tell a good story first is what I hope, and... Uh, and everything else should fall into place after that. Right. Is this uh, is this sort of study one uh, that puts... Because uh, you know, it's, it's a historical study, but is this one that stems from you hoping to strive for some personal place, or are you just generally interested in this as a kind of cultural uh, moment? Uh, I've always been fascinated by it as a cultural moment, but I think first contact is, is, is an important place for us as contemporary people to look at what, where we are. Uh, in terms of First Nations uh, um, relations with the rest of Canada, which are kind of rocky in, in many ways, and you know, Idle No More just didn't come out of nowhere. It came; it's come out of the very first. You know, it's it's, it's been happening for generations. This build up to First Nations people trying to reclaim, you know, what is rightfully theirs. And uh, you know, I'm a strong advocate for um, strengthening relations between First Nations people and, and the rest of Canada, because I think uh, there's a huge misunderstanding and, and and a huge anger and vitriol. All you have to do is open the comment section of any of the major newspapers in Canada online and, 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 and just see the hatred that pours out whenever any kind of First Nations issue arises. It's, it's, the trolling is unbelievable. And, and how did we get to this place, you know? Is it and is it essentially is it racism simply or this this seems well I think racism is a big part of it misunderstanding is a big part of it fear on behalf of a lot of uh, uh, Canada in not understanding or knowing what First Nations desire or want or 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 
are de- are deserving of. Um, so it comes from all different angles, and and the historical novel is a perfect place, I think, to begin exploring that because I think any historical novel worth its salt is going to really speak contemporarily or be thematically contemporary. Yeah, when you you say you're an advocate for dialogue, but what was your actual take on Idle No More? It's not over, and I'm uh, I'm all for it. I think Idle No More is an incredibly important grassroots movement that is not gone anywhere, and it's going to continue to strengthen. Just because it's gone quiet right now doesn't mean it's gone anywhere, and and it's it's a reawakening for young First Nations people, the fastest growing population in Canada, hmm. uh, a people, a very very varied group of young people, you know, from over the 600 First Nations represented in Canada. Um, it's, it's, it's a reawakening that, that's been a long time coming, and, and I'm a huge proponent, and I think it's really valuable, and it's a chance for First Nations people to have a voice in the Canadian, uh, in the Canadian diaspora, you know. So when you deal, as you have been, with sort of historical aspects of your culture and this country, how do you suppose that is informing contemporary discussions? Like, is there something about the arenda that will inform uh, Idle No More or people wanting to know more about what's happening now? I think so, because it shows, you know, I think, you know, if you look at a novel like Black Robe, written by Brian Moore, a movie made out of it, um, he really, as much as I admire Brian Moore as a writer, he he just got the Indian side of things totally wrong, unfortunately, and... Mm. So this is a chance for people to say, oh, wait a second, this is what they were. These were incredibly diverse, these were incredibly complex cultures that the Europeans walked into, cultures as easily as as complex as any in in Europe or the rest of the world, cultures that were as populous as Europe were at the time. These are are cultures with deep, deep religious and social and economic and and cultural uh, ties with one another, and, and... you know, it's, it's a, these were complete, fully formed worlds before before Europeans hit the shores. You know, when the Europeans yeah. came to the shores, uh, that's when things got interesting and also very deadly and very dangerous. Right. You know, the Huron people, within 10 years of the Jesuits first coming into the Huron communities, communities of 30,000 people, only 10,000 were left. The rest devastated by diseases the Jesuits and the other French had brought. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't do it on purpose, the Jesuits, but... Uh, they brought the disease, nonetheless, and uh, you know. So, and again, with my novel, I don't want to make it sound like one side's a bad side, one side's a good side. All of my characters, you know, I hope readers read this and see that all of my characters are complex and and imperfect beings. There is no good guys versus bad guys in my novel. Right. You, I suppose, the sort of discourse around um, around three uh, three black spruce was that it was something of a sequel. And then that led to the idea that this next book might complete a trilogy. Do you agree with that? Um, actually, no. There's going to be another book in the Bird family saga that, that will complete the trilogy. Oh, I see. Um, okay. This novel is a... I don't want to call it precursor because that makes it sound too simplistic. But this novel certainly, if, uh, if, if someone's a fan of my work, they're going to see where the Bird family, um, some of their origins, for sure, without giving too much away. Um, but there is a third novel in the Bird Trilogy, and there will also be a companion piece to this novel, too, it looks like. I'm really excited to write. Okay, so this is, you, you're, as you say, you're hesitant to call this a prequel, but it, there is a connection between this and your past. There's certainly a connection, yeah. I think that, uh, and it was almost unwittingly, uh, I created this, this, this 
book. Well, it became wittingly way through. I realized, oh my gosh, I know what I know something important that's uh, going to be exposed at the end of the novel. Oh, um, hmm. yeah. So. You're, su- you're surprising yourself. Oh yeah, I think any writer uh, when they surprise themselves, it's a happy surprise. It means you know we're doing something that in our unconscious that's uh, that's helping the book along. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like Canadians are, are reticent to explore their own? Uh, do you, Do you feel like they're so reticent res, reticent to explore their own history that a work of fiction might be the best gateway? Yeah, you know, there's this unbelievably silly kind of notion that Canadian history is somehow boring, and and anyone who says that just simply does not know our history. Hmm. Um, but again, fiction I think is the perfect place to 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 explore history because, as I mentioned, you know, good historical fiction rings contemporarily. Yeah, you know, my novel, I think, immigration and plays a big role in environment and economics and short-sightedness of certain economic plans. You know, um, all of this is is absolutely contemporary to what's going on now. So you mentioned what's next for this storyline. You mentioned that there might be a companion piece to the Arenda, even, and then a third book uh, to complete the original trilogy. Uh, is there anything else that you can tell us that you're working on that seems like a full plate? What's next for you? No, I've got a lot. I'm working on a ton of things. Working on a ballet for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. I'm uh, developing some uh, television for CBC. I'm writing a young adult novel next as well, called Turtle Island. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm 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 really kind of in this wonderful place creatively where I'm exploring all kinds of different media and 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 different. Uh, things at once, which is is really kind of fun. Very busy, but I, I like I prefer to be busy than not. Yeah, you sound extremely busy. All right, well, <laughs> that's great. And then you you're, you're as I said, you're appearing at the Eden Mills Writers Festival, and I presume that you'll be reading from the Arenda primarily. I will be absolutely. I'm really excited to get back to the festival. I was there uh, just post Katrina, um, eight years ago, eight long years ago, and. Uh, uh, I remember Katrina had just hit the city. Katrina, the anniversary was yesterday. Um, mm. um, but uh, were you yeah, in New? Bad were, time. Were you in New Orleans was, for uh, Katrina? I was actually flying back from uh, Scotland. I was at the Edinburgh Festival and flying back the day Katrina hit. So I was. I asked them to convert me, uh, divert me to Toronto, and uh, and from there went down very shortly after while the city was um, abandoned to report on it for McLean's and. Uh, and so I got into the city when it was a when it was a tomb. Were you living there at the time, though? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I've been living here on and off since '92. Oh, okay. So, did you? Uh, wh- what kind of damage did you suffer? Uh, the house we're in it took two feet of water. Um, our house that we own. Eighty um, percent of the city was affected physically, and all of the city was affected uh, in every other kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we all took a beating in our own way, and and some worse than others. Um, but uh, it's it's really made, going through a renaissance right now, the city, which is wonderful. Oh, great. Well, the reason I brought it up, and, and I didn't realize we would take this uh, turn, but I basically wanted to ask you about your impressions of, you know, festival culture, writing festivals uh, in particular, because it's a culture that some people might not be familiar with. I think a lot of people are familiar with music festivals and other kinds of things, but what do you make of writing festivals? Oh, I, I think Canada... Canada, it seems to be very specific to Canada, which I love. And writing festivals are just amazing. It's a great time of year, when you're, especially when you're an author and you've got a new book out and you get to travel across Canada and, and go to these different festivals from 
Halifax to Vancouver, kind of from Newfoundland to Vancouver. You know, the Woody Point Festival was brilliant out in Van- in, in Newfoundland, and the Vancouver Festival was brilliant, and, and all of the ones in between. And you get hundreds of people coming out to hear readings, and it's it's, it's dynamite. It's it's very. It shows the the strength of uh of the readership and writership in Canada. It's 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 an amazing thing. Yeah, it's interesting that in the face of sort of people talking about the death of publishing that uh, certain these festivals seem to be well i don't know that they're thriving but they seem to be keeping afloat they seem to well a lot of them you know i'll know this year but they seem to be thriving to me and you know i don't think publishing's dying it's certainly in transition but i don't think reading's ever going to go anywhere right right reading is a you know takes a different part of the brain um than uh, than any other thing does and <laughs> i think that humans crave it and and it's not going to go anywhere all right well i I hope you're right i totally hope you're right (laughs) uh once again joseph boyden's new book the arenda is out september 10th via the uh, hamish hamilton imprint and penguin books and he is reading at the eden mills writers festival on the afternoon of sunday september 15th you can learn more about all of these things at hamishhamilton.ca and edenmillswritersfestival.ca joseph it was a great pleasure to speak with you and i want to thank you once again for your time wonderful speaking with you too me in a good mood, it keeps me going when under strains, ain't nothing worse than hunger pains, right there, start with life fair if need be, snacks with an X whatever, just feed me some food Sarah Elton is the best-selling author of Locavore, From Farmer's Fields to Rooftop Gardens How Canadians Are Changing the Way We Eat which won gold at the Canadian Culinary Book Awards She is the food columnist for CBC Radio's Here and Now and has written for the New York Times The Globe and Mail and Maclean's among other publications Elton's latest book is Consumed, Food for a Finite Planet, and it chronicles her examination of people from all over the world who, in anticipation of the increasing strain on our planet by growing populations and climate change, are creating sustainable alternatives to industrial farming and also getting to know the food we consume on a personal level. Sarah Elton appears at the Eden Mills Writers' Festival both on Saturday, September 14th in conversation with Michael Pollan at Rosansky Hall at the University of Guelph, and then on her own for a reading on Sunday, September 15th in the village of Eden Mills. Here now to discuss this further is Sarah Elton. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Thanks. How are you? I'm very well. Where in the world are you right now? I know you, you, you like to travel, so where are you? I do. I, you know what? I'm based in Toronto, which is a pretty busy center for alternative food movements. Uh, in fact, all of Ontario is really doing, compared to what is happening in other places around the world, we're, we're leading the way. Now, why do you suppose that is? What is it about this region that might uh, inspire that? I don't. Yeah, I, it, I was even surprised because we have this this idea that places like old places like Italy and uh, France have these old foodways. But when I was interviewing, for example, the underground food movement in Italy called uh, Genuino Clandestino, when I was interviewing people about Genuino Clandestino, mm-hmm. which means genuine clandestine, so we're we're talking you know underground food movement here. They were they were saying they have farmers markets once a month. Um, and uh, it's much harder, they've said, to, for, to, than they, they see in North America. How it's easier to get, for us to get organic, local food here from all our farmers' markets than, than it is there, and, and that really surprised me. So when I look at my city, I can go to a farmers' market in, on my bike 
almost any day of the week. There are so many. There's been such energy and such interest um, in, in, in building stronger food systems. And I think that's because of the economic benefits it brings and also the, the cultural benefits that they bring. Yeah. And environmental, too. Do, do you suppose that uh, Canadians or Ontarians in particular uh, tend to look outward more in, in terms of uh, looking at the world and, and, and having an, uh, fostering an interest in what's going on, maybe more so than other places? Have you noticed that? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that we might have this idea that other places must must be better than us. I think Canadians we tend, we have that that tendency, um, but we really should we really should celebrate the the incredible ideas that are coming out of of Southern Ontario, like um, Farm Start and their incubator farms. Mm-hmm. Um, all all this these opportunities to get new farmers into the business of farming and provide them with the tools and the knowledge that they need. We have um, farming so much farming being done on public land. Uh, this is this is real innovation. Yeah. Um, and so. Other places are doing this too, like in, in, in France, I write about a land trust um, that, that people, just people who have no connection to farming, who live in the city, but they, wanna, they want to connect with a better future and a better food system, they give money to, through this organization, Terre des Liens, mm-hmm. they give money and uh, they invest their money um, without the hope of real dividends in the end, but they invest their money in, in buying organic farms for new farmers to come and uh, farm the land and produce the kind of food that they want to be able to get in their cities too. And so okay, lots of these sort of great great ideas are 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 also happening here in Canada. So we're 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 not doing too bad. You basically you're saying that in the in the grand scheme of things Canadians are actually quite forward thinking and we're kind of on it. We're on we're on the case. Yes, we are on the case and there's a lot of innovation especially coming out of the generation of people who are in their 20s now, mm-hmm. um 20s and 30s people who the job market might not look so fabulous for, but they can, they, they're taking the initiative. Um, there's a woman whom I know, she founded an organization where she, she and, and some friends, they grow food, they borrow people's backyards, and they grow food, and then they have a CSA through this. Now, this is a not-for-profit, and I, it's not, they're not, they're not getting rich, but they have created a, a really interesting organization that's doing good work and and feeding people good food and, and teaching people about connecting to nature through gardens. Right. Well, I mean, speaking of doing good work and, and trying to instill people with, uh, you know, I guess the inspiration to do good work, you, you're doing a huge part with your work. And I, I was hoping you could tell us more about uh, what inspired you to write your latest book, Consumed. Well, as a journalist who covers food and sustainability, I'm often asked, people would often often ask me, you know, how can we feed our growing world population? Because there's this perception that we, we need industrial agriculture to feed all these hungry people around the world. So I, I also wanted to know the answer to this question. So I, I went out and I looked for this answer. And what I found when I, and I traveled to India and China and France and and in Canada and the United States. And what I found really was so inspiring. All these stories were so inspiring and exciting and full of innovation and great ideas that I wanted to write a book about it. So mm-hmm. my book tells these stories of how people are using all this, this creativity and innovation to, to create sustainable food systems that can feed us at this time when we really have to be thinking about change because climate change has made the status quo not, not, really, not workable. It's for, and it's forcing us to rethink how we grow and sell and really distribute our food. Yeah. And in your book, you target the year 2050 as a key in our kind of collective timeline. Uh, where did that uh, Where did that number come from? 
Yeah, I structure the book as a countdown to 2050, and, and then I provide this action plan for what we need to transform our industrial food system into one that is sustainable and, and really just by just and ethical by mid-century. And I chose that time frame because it matches more or less the amount of time it took for us to build the industrial food system as we know it today. Oh, I see. So in the last few generations, we've created this global industrial machine that is, you know, not doing good things for our planet um, and our environment and, and our atmosphere. So we should be able to take apart. That's the conceit. We should be able to take apart and assemble something new in that same amount of time. But there really is this rush to do this because of climate change. And, and we must act fast because uh, the, the already at the current rate of greenhouse gas emissions, we're, we're on our way to when I spoke to the climate scientists, we're... we're on our way to warming the planet, you know, in the next 50 to 100 years to uh, something that's not going to be very pleasant. You, you know, for some reason, we're all rather slow or even reticent to react to calls to action, particularly when it comes to matters like climate change and, the, and you know, the general betterment of our planet. And this always baffles me. Uh, why do you suppose sustainability is such a difficult concept to, uh, for the general population to embrace as a pressing concern? I think it's so vast, the idea of, of climate change is so big. And when I was writing this book, I, I would have periods of, of deep sadness and, and well, yeah, just sadness and, and the thought of, and despair, because I would learn something from a scientist that was not very optimistic. And then I would think, how on earth can we change this massive food system that, that helps make climate change worse. And then I would have to think of, of the small things. And, and I would think of all these small little stories of people doing great change in their own communities. And, and then I would feel hopeful again. And so th that's another reason why I wrote the book is that food allows us to make this huge issue of climate change very personal and something that we can do something about every day. In, in, the, in the sustainable food movement, people often say this. They say, you know, when you when you eat, you have you make at least three times a day. You have choice. You could you you have a choice to make three times a day to do something better, to do something good. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't do it at breakfast, well, hey, you have you have lunch and dinner to to make a choice to make something better. So, I think that food makes that that inaction that that we that we see around us all around the world. It it, it makes that inaction inaction turns it into action because we have the possibility to change all the time every day. Yeah, and and I feel like the narrative has shifted quite a bit to one of some well, I don't want to use the word haste, but as I say, this is scientists experts are 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 shifting their tone to be like we have to do this now. We have to make the changes now in order to reach sustainable objectives by a certain period. But when you point to 2050, I sometimes feel like this might be part of the issue for the general population. Oh, that's so far away. Let's worry about that as we get closer to it. You know what I mean? There's, there seems to be that tone. Whereas, as you point out, there's so many people who have said, look, we, if we don't do something now, we're not even going to get to 2050. The, yeah, there's, there is a lot of... Um a lot of despair and fear out there and the tone has changed even since I started writing writing the book and you know we've seen what happened in New York City in Calgary where you know the environment show, throws us throws us a wild card and th that no one expected and so um 
food, our, our food system, we have to build a food system that is resilient to the, to, to these wild cards of mm. climate that, that are, that, that people say will be coming at us. Yes, you're right. Much sooner than 2050. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the book you highlight, as you mentioned earlier, you, you, you did travel to areas like, uh, India, France, uh, China, uh, closer to home in the States and in, in Quebec. And, uh, I'm curious, how did you come to discover these places to be relevant to your research? Because in some cases, they're remote villages and things like that. In fact, most of the locations are rather remote. How did you, how did you discover them? Oh, that's a yeah, that's a good question. How did I, I, I'm a journalist, so um, and and I used to be a radio reporter, so I so or a radio producer. So, <laughs> as a radio person, you can find you can find anything anywhere. And <laughs> um, I, I'm only part joking. Um, you know, I just I did I did old fashioned reporting and I found these stories. But what was what? But I don't want to pat myself on the back because what's amazing about the sustainable food movement is that it is truly global and literally everywhere you look, you will find it. Um, I was astounded, you know, to be in some in a small village in China and have people telling me things that echoed exactly what someone else told me in in Guelph, which echoed exactly what someone else told me in France, in Italy, I could, in India, I could go on and on and on. And yeah. so, so it's not hard to find examples of this. It's everywhere. And that's because I think people just want to eat. They want to eat in the words of the slow food movement, you know, good, clean, fair food that just feels right. And, and that's what they want. So that's why we have this global sustainable food movement, because it, it really represents hope in a better way. Right, and people are having conversations about it, and enough of them are rising to the surface that... I don't want to get too far into your process, because I know it's your process. You mentioned your work as a radio producer, and that, you know, in a sense, you can find anyone or anything. But you know, for, the, for just someone trying to process this, can you just walk us through a day of you trying to figure out what's going on in the world? Like, Do you get up in the morning? Are you on the internet? How do you discover these places as or even a... As, as someone with a, a with the mind of a reporter, what do you do? Oh, interesting question. Um, I've never been asked that question before. The what do I do? I I make a lot of telephone calls. Hmm. Be, um, the internet is obviously an incredible tool, but you can only go so far online. Uh, and telephone is a great way to make connections with people. And people answer phone call. Uh, you know, will answer the phone, whereas they might not answer an email. So I would I phone people. I have a lot of phone cards. Um, you know those international cheap international calling cards, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and I and I just do a lot of interviews and talk to many people, and and it's through this you know human intelligence that you can I can't gathering that I can find out about organizations. So I talk to one person and say, what do you know? What tell me about the world from your perspective and paint me a picture of what you see right now where you're standing. I want to I want to see I want to be there in your field and then. Uh, with you, if I say I'm talking to a farmer, and mm. then and then I, I honed in on the stories that these three stories in the book that best showed us um, that showed that, that best told the story. You know, the, the the that I can follow from beginning to end, and that had a, a lovely narrative arc. Because I want the book, I wanted the book also to be. I'm, I'm I love to tell stories, and I wanted the book to feel like a pleasure to read. I didn't, I didn't want, I wanted people to be able to read it in the bath, uh, not sitting at a desk right. with a, with a pen ready to underline, you know, I wanted it to be fun. So I needed to find the characters and the stories that, 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 that best, that best told the story. I've, I also worked in a little bit in documentary. So I, I borrowed those, those techniques as well. 
Yeah, and I, you know, not to uh, overflatter you, but the the, the the depictions in the book are very vivid, and uh, you can oh, so thank you. You, you you do get a sense of the people in it. Uh, you know, as I say, they kind of come to life. So it's not simply a dry uh, science book. If people are you know hesitant to pick it up based on that, at the same time, it's a very important cause. So I hope everyone picks it up. What what do you hope is the I suppose primary takeaway for people reading consumed. I would hope that people feel that sense of global oneness that I felt when I had finished writing writing this book. Um, the the last the last chapter and 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 the conclusion of the book. I I write about how we really have this network of people around the world that are thinking in a similar way and who are aspiring to sustainability and and a, and a cultural and a profound cultural shift and and that just fills me with happiness to know that you know i i'm i'm not alone in wanting this world to to find a, a more sustainable balance so that my children ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Children have a better future um, than than one that 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 I paint in the in the in the introduction. Right. So, um, if people were to, were to take away this idea that there is this, um, to borrow the words of a, a very good writer and scientist, Tim Flannery, uh, this potentially this global super super organism that that can come together with all our fantastic ideas and creativity and innovation and not necessarily a lot of money just these great ideas and we can bring them together and make real change um, in our communities and around the world that that will lead us down a better path yeah no and, and that's uh, i mean that's a really succinct way of, of taking the, of the message i took away from the book so yeah i i, I do oh, hope pe- i do i do hope people pick this book up you, you are doing this uh this uh appearance with michael pollan at rosansky hall at the university of guelph for the eden mills writers festival what is your preparation like for this exactly? Have you uh, had a discussions with him, him or his people about what what this is going to uh, be like for uh, for you? You know, I personally haven't spoken to Michael Pollan yet, and I'm really looking forward to speaking with him because I have read his books and I I really enjoy his his writing and his thoughts, and he's he's shaped this. A food movement in North America so profoundly mm-hmm. that it's a real honor to be able to to sit beside him and and talk with him. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we're all looking forward to it. It's going to be great. I uh, for you personally, what's next? What are you working on now? Is there something you can tell us about? Uh, I know you keep busy. I have uh, written a kids book, um, a book for young young people about 
how the science of food, the culture of food, and that teaches kids how to cook. So how to, if you, it, and I think it would work for adults too. You know, if you read Locavore or Consumed and you want to cook for yourself because the last part of Consumed is looks at the culture of food and how we all have to have, we need a new culture of food to support sustainability. And a lot of that means going back into the kitchen. Well, this book tells, tells you how, and it's been, boys have been fun to write and boys, I learned a lot. I, and, and writing for kids is, is a real challenge. So it's really a lot of fun that comes out in the spring. And what's the name of the book? Starting from scratch. Starting from scratch, and it's aimed at sort of what demo- nine nine to thirteen year old kids. Nice. So that's great. You're going to try to help people uh, learn about cooking. Little kids. I I kind of regret my childhood. I wish I spent more time with my mom while she was cooking. I guess little kids don't do that. Maybe, but maybe they should. No, and you know what? They want to. They lo- It takes longer and it's messy. But um, and I have kids, so I I know this personally. But they love to help if you give them a chance. They'd, yeah. they'd rather be there beside you in the kitchen. Okay, so it's not my fault. It's really my. It's bad parenting. <laughs> That's what I really. Didn't say what, what that. <laughs> well, once again, Sarah Elton's latest book, "Consumed: Food for a Finite Planet," is available now via Har- Harper Collins, and she appears at the Eden Mills Writers Festival both on Saturday, September fourteenth, in conversation with Michael Pollan at Rosansky Hall at the University of Guelph at 2 p.m., and then on her own for a reading on Sunday, September 15th at 12.30 in the afternoon at the Cottage in the beautiful village of Eden Mills. For more information, please visit EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca and SarahElton.ca. Sarah, it's such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, best of luck with everything. Oh, thanks so much for speaking with me. We are circling, circling together We are singing, singing our hearts on This is family, this is unity This is celebration Thomas King is a Guelph resident and one of Canada's most respected intellectuals. He has spent the past five decades working as an activist for Native causes and uh, teaching Native American studies at the University of Lethbridge and the University of Minnesota, and he has also taught in the English department at the University of Guelph. King was the first Aboriginal person to deliver the prestigious Massey Lectures, and he's won several awards, including the National Aboriginal Achievement Award and the Order of Canada. He created the CBC Radio 1 series at the Dead Dog Cafe Comedy Hour and is the best-selling author of five acclaimed novels, a couple of short story collections, some non-fiction work, and children's books. His latest work is The Inconvenient Indian, a curious account of Native people in North America, and he appears at the Eden Mills Writers' Festival this Sunday, September 15th, at the Sculpture Garden at 12.30 in the afternoon. Here now to discuss this further is Thomas King. Hi, Tom. How are you? Hi. It's very nice to speak with you. Uh, you know, the last time you and I saw each other was at the Guelph Jazz Festival. How was your time there? Oh, that was uh, that was great. I enjoy that. Uh, I, I suppose most people what most people don't know is that I was a photographer long before I was a writer or anything else, and so I've I've kept that up over the years. I used to be a commercial photographer. I gave it up. I hated doing weddings. So it, <laughs> the weddings and and art directors, uh, you know, who wanted things that were just about impossible for film to do, drove me crazy. So. I just do exhibitions now, so I, I get to shoot the Guelph Jazz Festival, and that's a lot of fun. I really enjoy that. Now, what drew you to photography? Uh, I, I guess uh, I had nothing else. I always thought of myself as a little bit on the artistic side, but I didn't have any artistic endeavors. And uh, 
I had caught a tramp steamer out of San Francisco to New Zealand, and uh, while I was there, I was there for about a year, um, I wound up uh, lying my way into a photography job. I had a camera. I had bought a camera in San Francisco, so I fancied myself perhaps a photographer. And hmm. uh, then I got a job over there and learned how to do it, which was helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Simple as that. And then the connection to the uh, Guelph Jazz Festival is, is what exactly? Because it's a... Well, yeah, I, I arrived in town in 1995, and uh, Ajay Hebley, uh, who's a colleague of mine up at the University in the English Department, uh, stopped by and said, I understand you're a photographer. And I said, yeah, I am, as a matter of fact. And uh, he said, any chance I get you to take a couple of shots, one or two shots of uh, some artists at the Jazz Festival? I said, sure, I'll do that. Well, one or two shots for Ajay meant uh, the entire festival and as many people <laughs> as I could get. So I did that, and uh, I thought, okay, well, that was, that was fun. And then, of course, the next year, having done it the first year, Ajay came back and said, uh, could you do it again? And before I knew it, uh, 18 years had passed, and I'm still <laughs> doing it. Right, and you, you guys just had a, an exhibition at the uh, McDonald's. Well, I mean, when I say you guys, I mean you and the Jazz Festival kind of had an exhibition at the McDonald's Stewart Arts Center. Yeah, the, this year, which was the 20th uh, anniversary of the Guelph Jazz Festival, uh, Ajay came to me and said he'd like to do an um, uh, exhibition of my prints from all those years. And so we got together and we worked on it, and uh, uh, we put together what I think was a pretty nice show, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, the, the, there was a small show that opened with the Jazz Festival, then on September 26th, uh, larger show is going to open at uh, the McDonald's Stewart. Right. So I'll be, ang I'll be anxious to see that. We've talked about your association with this festival from a sort of circumstantial perspective, but what about the music itself? Do you relate to uh, the jazz festival? Well, uh, when I was uh, roaming around the countryside, uh, I certainly uh, ran into a lot of jazz. I mean, that was the thing that we would do when I was younger, is go down to the jazz clubs. They were they were inexpensive. You never knew who was going to come there or be there. Uh, this was in the 60s and the 70s. And it was a good time for, you know, uh, a lot of great jazz musicians uh, in that era. And, and now, too, for that matter. Uh, I like jazz. Um, improv jazz, I don't understand as well as I might uh, just sort of jazz with a melody line. But, uh, but in that, whenever I say that, I feel like I'm a... Um, a dinosaur, a curmudgeon. So, but I do en I do enjoy the music. Some of the music I find difficult, but uh, that's me. And uh, you know, the more I listen to it, uh, the, uh, the the better it gets. Well, I, and I don't know if this is the the most appropriate segue, but speaking of not maybe understanding a cultural phenomenon or or a culture as a whole or or whatever, I mean, that kind of brings us to your book, The Inconvenient Indian. And mm -hmm. I think partially uh, your method, method, methodology in terms of trying to convey a rich and complicated history. And as I'm reading your book, uh, and then, forgive me if this seems untoward, but one of the lines that came to mind when I, while I've been reading your book, uh, it's from a Woody Allen movie. It's tragedy plus time equals comedy, because you've infused this book with humor, even though you're covering, um, uh, as I say, a very complicated uh, tragic history. Can you maybe talk about uh, the tone of this book and why you, you, you've, you've chosen to approach it this way? 
Yeah, well, I mean, uh, way back when, in uh, the late 60s, early 70s in particular, when I was, um, I suppose you could call me a frontline activist. I I don't know that uh, I was more scared than I was activist, actually, during those years. But um, uh, what I would do is sometimes make speeches, you know, and yell at people and bang on tables and uh, try to get people's attention, basically. You know, know, pay attention, guys. Uh, This is important stuff that we're trying to talk about. But what happened was, uh, with that kind of an approach, people generally turned off. And, you know, they would just turn away. And so I learned very quickly that if you're going to keep people's attention, you better have another strategy. And so my strategy became humor, it became satire, uh, became, uh, you know, uh, dealt more with generosity than I dealt with uh, being mean-spirited about the whole thing. Now, I'm not going to suggest that that's the best approach to take, I think. All the approaches that we dealt with in those days were effective to some degree. The press certainly liked to see the angry Indian rather than the uh, comic Indian. But for me, um, I decided that the best way to reach people was through a kind of comedy satire uh, combination. And so uh, I think comedy allows you to approach a subject uh, without feeling uh, a little defensive about the whole thing. And then then if you want to do some damage, you can. Right. And, and I mean, in terms of art, I, I, do, I think you're right. The best art engages people first and then maybe tries to um, inspire them or, 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 or alter their perspective second. Is, is, is that maybe what you're getting at? Yeah, well, I mean, you can't tell people what to think. You can certainly put material in front of them in a particular way that makes them curious about the whole process or about the whole history. And I think that's the best you can do. I mean, people have to do that for themselves. Uh, Whether native people, non-native people, uh, you just can't, you know, force that information. You can't force that way of thinking on anyone. Uh, All I try to do is provide a blueprint for, oh, the imagination, the blueprint for some kind of uh, um, intelligent discussion. Do you, do you think that, in general, uh, interest in history is, is waning? I don't think it was ever strong. <laughs> hmm. I think, we're, I think we're, we have a, a sense of immediate history, and our own situation in the world, but I don't think that uh, North Americans are are very well versed in history, to be honest with you. I think we have uh, little uh, national bits that we're aware of, but the rest of it is just, you know, it's gone, and nobody pays much attention to us. I think I, I think we're in pretty bad shape in terms of understanding history. Is that just, but do you think that, is that a normal course of action for someone living a life every day? I mean, to not look past, uh, look look to the past that often? I don't know. Um, I mean, uh, all I know is North America. I don't know uh, how Europeans uh, view their history, what their understanding of history is. I don't know what other nations, what other cultures, how they uh, manage their history. I just know in North America, we tend to throw it away. But then again, we throw everything away. <laughs> Everything's fairly disposable, yes. I, I, and, and, then we, and then we buy more stuff. <laughs> right, right, it's true. 
You know, throughout the book, it's funny that you're talking, it's interesting that we're talking about uh, the relationship with history and people's sort of uh, drive to study it and, and remain interested in it. Throughout the book, you mentioned that your wife, Helen Hoy, had to sort of urge you to continue writing this book, and I'm curious if you can talk about why you were reticent to do it. Well, a number of reasons. One, it was a very hard book to write, and I'm lazy. Oh, I tend to be lazy, or I can be lazy. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a hard six years or so of actually writing the book. Now, I mean, the book is, uh, as I say in the book, a conversation I've been having with myself most of my adult life. But the fact of the matter is having a conversation with yourself in your head and with other people is not the same thing as putting it into a book and making it coherent for an audience. So that part, just that part alone is difficult. I mean, anybody who's written a book knows just how hard it is to, to complete one. Right. So there was that, and I'm not getting any younger. Right. And the other thing, too, is that uh, the book, uh, frankly, opened up old wounds along the way that I would have just as soon, uh, you know, uh, left alone, uh, sort of like picking at scabs, if you will. So it's, uh, and it was a difficult book to to go back and get all of the bits and pieces that I wanted. I had studied history at university, mm -hmm. spent quite a bit of time with historians, and worked at the American West Center at the University of Utah. Uh, they did quite a bit of work with uh, Native people. And um, so I, I, I had most of the bits and pieces, but again, having the bits and pieces isn't the same thing as putting them into a coherent narrative. Right. So, uh, you know, I was, I was tired, and uh, I would get to places that I really didn't want to revisit again. And so, uh, really, it was, uh, it was Helen who said, you know, just, just keep going, just keep <laughs> pushing along. So, so is, this is a nonfiction book. Is this the hardest book you've ever written in terms of uh, the, the various uh, approaches you take to writing? Uh, yeah, probably just in terms of uh, difficulty. I mean, when I'm writing fiction, I create the world. I am sort of God in that world. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing happens unless I make it happen. And I can make it up. Uh, I don't have to deal with what we cleverly refer to as facts. Um, but with a history book, I'm sort of trapped by some of the things that did happen. I can't change those around. Well, I could, I suppose, but then people would have words with me about that. Uh, so I have to work within that framework, and it's uh, sometimes it's like, uh, you know, uh, having one hand tied behind your back, my creative hand. Yeah. And that was, that was difficult. Um, I said after I finished this, I'd never do another nonfiction book, and, uh, and yet I've got this idea for a third one. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the idea at this point, or is oh well, it 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 is not. It's I've got it framed out, but uh, whenever I start start talking about my ideas for writing projects, they 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 make me sound stupider than I actually am. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So that I it's don't. In, yeah, no, I can appreciate. I, I understand what you're saying. I, I do think it's interesting that you almost immediately uh, upon publication of this book suggested you wouldn't be revisiting nonfiction, yet now your wheels are turning. Well, what happened was uh, when I, there, were, there was a whole bunch of stuff that I did not use in this book that, 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 that pissed me off. And uh, I figured, well, maybe I can do something else with it, or maybe I can 
expand it and make it a broader, uh, a third book, a broader book. And so if I do a third nonfiction book, then it will be um, not so much about Native people, but about uh, the world that we've created. Okay. Uh, so I, 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 you know, why, why take on the small stuff when you can take on the big stuff? <laughs> yeah, why not? Take on a bigger project, sure. Yeah. There's yeah. A, a chapter entitled Too Heavy to Lift in which you kind of outline uh, three different kinds of Indians. Do you mind just mm-hmm. talking about that a little bit? <laughs> I've almost forgotten what I said, to be honest with you. The book is, for me, is almost uh, two years old. Yes, uh, yes, I apologize. But, uh, well, the the main point of my question is that you've uh, delineated these three different kinds of Indians. You have the dead Indian, the live Indian, and the legal Indian. And I'm just wondering right. if you can talk about that distinction. Well, uh, the, the dead Indian we could talk about all day long, really. Uh, basically, it's just that image of Indians that North Americans have, that idea of Indians that North Americans have that, uh, that has some relationship to uh, historical models, but not much. Uh, it's a creative thing. It's sort of like Disney's uh, Pocahontas. Uh, take a little bit of history, take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and put it in the oven and come out with a sugar tart. Right. Uh, the, um, uh, the live Indian really is just uh, contemporary Native people. Those of us who are still on our feet, uh, those right. of us who uh, you know, are managing to live our lives. And the legal Indian's easy enough. That's the that's the Indian in Canada, at least. It's the, it's the status Indian that has a legal um, relationship to the federal government. In the States, it's pretty much the same thing. Right. Okay. So it's, I mean, it's, it's just a handy-dandy way of talking about uh, the various forms that, uh, that Indians and Indianness take in our contemporary world. Uh, you could re- do that in a variety of ways. Sure. That was just the way I chose, just to keep it simple. Yeah. There's this uh, passage I want to read here about uh, the dead Indian. Um, Sometimes you can only watch and marvel at the ways in which the dead Indian has been turned into products. Red Chief Sugar, Calumet Baking Soda, the Atlanta Braves, Big Chief Jerky, Gray Owl Wild Rice, Red Man Tobacco, the Chicago Blackhawks, Mutual of Omaha, Winnebago Motorhomes, Big Chief Tablet, Indian Motorcycles, the Washington Redskins, American Spirit Cigarettes, Jeep Cherokee, the Cleveland Indians, and Tomahawk Missiles. So on the one hand, you're discussing kind of the cultural appropriation and the problematic nature of that. I'm curious about the... Because part of the book is sort of like, this is how uh, the image and culture that I'm from have been mistreated. But why do you suppose, uh, these, in particular, the sports teams... Stuck out for me. Why? Why would sports teams uh, want to use Indians? Yeah, <laughs> we're fierce. But my God, the Chicago Blackhawks, Indians on the ice. You right. Know, look out. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, whenever I see the Washington Redskins and the Dallas Cowboys play, I get a good chuckle out of that. Right. <laughs> I, I, in my mind, in my creative mind, I see a massacre there on the field. <laughs> So it's an it's an it's a weird, complicated inhabitation of a cultural stereotype, basically. Well, it's just that 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 notion that there's something free and wild and uh, 
unfettered uh, about Indians, uh, slightly uncivilized, uh, uh, but uh, but powerful. Uh, that's that's really uh, the reason why you have the Washington Redskins and Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, uh, there's that that sense of maybe not danger, but uh, sense of raw raw power. Uh, geez, I go look at myself in the mirror and see if I can see any of that. <laughs> no, and I totally understand that aspect of it. But when you're talking about um, a, a culture that has, you know, there have been attempts made over the centuries to erase its existence or any trace of its existence, because mm-hmm. that's that's something you talk about a lot in the book. And yet at the same time, you have this weird uh, sort of, and, 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 like it's sort of this thing that won't let the culture die and it's as it's it's extremely problematic but at the same time it's not as much of an erasure and i find this complicated well uh the, the easy answer is that uh native nations are the only antiquity that north america has hmm. and uh you know we tend to hold on to our antiquities uh, you know the greeks the romans uh the egyptians you know in different parts of the world you know you sort of hold on to that uh that old order and you do so because it uh, provides you with a base uh, for your own culture. And oddly enough, North America is based on uh, on native culture. Right. Um, and that's one of the reasons that they don't get rid of that part of it. You can get rid of Indians. That's you know that's okay, but you don't get rid of that uh, that image, uh, that idea. Yeah. And, and, Why would you? It's handy. Well, and I mean, you mentioned sort of the tropes about being fierce and 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 frightening, which I uh, that's that's the part that I obviously is very problematic. But mm. I guess on another level, I assume it's teams sort of trying to in, uh, instill a kind of uh, this is terrible, but a, like a tribal aspect to their, you know, their. Oh, I don't. I don't think there's anything tribal about that. No. Uh, okay. I, I think it's more the first one. I mean, there, uh, why else would you have, uh, you know, Tomahawk missiles and Apache attack helicopters? Right, right, right. Uh, you know, why not have uh, puppy attack helicopters sure, or, sure. Uh, you know, or white CEO attack helicopters? That would be a good one. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. No, I'm referring mostly to the sports teams, which I, I think it's just a very strange situation, uh, frankly. Like, and I... And I yeah, I, I think I I don't think it's the tribalness so much as it's the ferocity, the uh, the danger, you know, mm. uh, um, and the really nifty uniforms. Right. Except for the Cleveland Indians, that have got the stupidest looking uniform <laughs> and mascot. Uh, Jesus. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really terrible. Uh, I want to ask you uh, about the uh, Idle No More movement and also the Harper government. You've been very outspoken. With your thoughts about both, where where do you stand with those things now? Well, I mean, uh, the Idle No More movement is, uh, you know, one of those one of those moments where things come to a head, and uh, the concerns that Native people have uh, make it into the public sphere. It's not as though these things just come along every so often. Uh, that that thread of trying to defend what we have uh, is there all the time. It's just that it uh, sort of comes out every so often. Idle No More was one of those times. Mm-hmm. Uh, where that will go or what will happen uh, next, I have no idea. But that was 
really what that what that was right. and is. Uh, as far as the Harper government goes, I mean, I really shouldn't uh, come down too hard on uh, on Harper and the conservatives. Uh, they're doing no more, no less than other governments have done. I mean, the liberals are are not uh, without uh, shame, um, and that is just that uh, that Harper seems to be more. Uh, I don't know. Uh, seems to be more uh, committed to uh, trying to break up the native estate. Right. Right. And in that, he's probably scarier than other prime ministers have been and other presidents have been. So I don't know. I don't know how all that's going to work out. The problem is that much of what uh, the conservatives are doing right now will wind up in court, which is where everything seems to wind up in court if you're an Indian. Uh, we should take out uh, uh, timeshare uh, seats at the Canadian Supreme Court. Maybe we could, you know, buy ten or so and just uh, and just have folks from different tribes sit there. Yeah. And wait for wait for uh, decisions to come down. You you yourself have had uh, political ambitions before. You run for. Have <laughs> <laughs> uh, those subsided on some level, on a personal level? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I am. I'm much more dangerous in the public sphere than I ever would have been in Ottawa. What was your? Um, what can you tell us about your experience running for uh, the position that you ran for? Well, it was interesting. I had a lot of great people uh, who were helping me on that, working with me on that. Uh, I, I found it difficult. Uh, just because uh, you wind up as uh, part of a team where you really cannot or should not say uh, what you want to say, mm-hmm. because the idea is to get elected and then get in there and you know make changes. But at the political level, I'm afraid what I discover is that political change comes really, really slowly. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that people don't want to do, and I don't care what your party is, they don't want to make too many fast moves. And uh, I find that I find that uh, difficult to deal with. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I see a problem. I want to call it out. I want to see if we can't do something about it. I don't want to sit around in committees and whatnot, and uh, you know, try to come to a a concerted, uh, not concerted, uh, come to, uh, you know, um, an agreement. Consensus, yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, I, what I discovered was that probably, and you don't discover this until you try something, uh, probably uh, I was not as good uh, political material as I thought I would have been. Hmm. Uh, you know, to have uh, to have an opinion, to think that you know you're you're smart enough to do it, uh, to be willing to put yourself on the line, all those things are givens. But then, to sort of back off and wait and play that sort of political game, I found difficult yeah. to do. I, I I tend to be a, you know I tend to shoot my mouth off. Right. If and, I'm not careful. <laughs> well, you surely you knew it was going to be a bit of a bureaucratic quagmire before you entered it. Uh, yeah, but I told myself it wouldn't, that I'd be different, that, you know, uh, that my situation would uh, blah, 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 right. blah, you know, every, right. everything you tell yourself right. of course. on that. 
match. And, and, you ha- and you have to, I think. I think political life is very difficult. Um, you know, I haven't, uh, I haven't talked to Frank Valeria about how he's finding, finding Ottawa. And I think Frank uh, is of a, you know, a, a particular mindset that uh, he's able to manage that. And I think, uh, you know, people like, uh, you know, James Gordon here in Guelph, who's going to be running for office, would be a, a great politician. Uh, I don't know that I would have been. I like to think I would have been, but I don't know that I would have been. So right. I'm trying to be honest with myself. Yeah, I guess it's good to to you know face yourself and figure out what you what you're capable of and and uh, you know live with that. Well, mass, mass, massacres certainly. Massacres. Well, massacres, some disruptions. Yeah, uh, yeah. We seem to have a you know a pretty good history on that. Yes. Although, as I point out in the book, uh, whites actually were better at massacres than Indians. I didn't know that before I did the research. On it, yeah, that that did stick out for me. That passage did stick out for me. <laughs> I, I didn't realize that either. That uh, no, yeah, no. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? There's lots to learn in this book. I, I will say, you're going to be at Eden Mills uh, this Sunday. Can you tell us a little bit about what you have planned uh, uh, as a reader there? Uh, I don't know. I, I I normally make my choice on what I'm going to read at the last minute. Uh, partly is to see what the audience looks like. Uh, try to feel what's in the air that day. Uh, I've got a couple of spots in the book that I can read from. Mm-hmm. And I just have them there, and by the time I get to the podium, I've made a decision, uh, good or bad, and away we go. But I don't do a lot of work on it beforehand. And there's no, there's likely, there's no likelihood that you'll be reading something uh, unpublished, something new? Uh no, I think uh, the idea is that they want me to read from The Inconvenient Indian. Um, I'd, I'd be happy to read uh, some unpublished stuff. I've got a new novel that will be coming out in September of 2014. And I could certainly read from that. That would be fun. But uh, uh, there's, the, there's the creative end of writing and there's the business end of writing. And right now for The Inconvenient Indian, I'm in the business end of it. <laughs> Maybe, maybe, and I'm not trying to tell you your business, Tom. Maybe you can do both. I mean, who's to who's going to tell you what to do for crying out loud? Well, the guy, the the person who tells me I have 15 minutes to read, and then oh, right. puts the big hook out on stage and drags me off kicking and screaming like a chicken. <laughs> this so, isn't this, that guy. This isn't the Apollo Theater, as far as I know. But I think uh, I, maybe you're maybe you're right. Maybe you should just be reading from the new book. Although it'd be amazing to hear uh, more about your new novel. Can you tell us about that? Uh, it's called The Back of the Turtle, and uh, it would be hard to describe this one in the same way it would have been hard to describe Green Grass Running Water before it came out. Hmm. So I'm not going to really try uh, to do it, because whenever I describe my books or try to describe the books or the ideas I have for books, I sound really, really stupid. Right. And I come away thinking that... That was really a bad idea. I better rethink that thing for a book. So I don't want to destroy it before I actually get it there. And I haven't finished writing it yet. I'm still waiting for notes from my publisher. Oh, okay. Sorry. When you said it was going to be out in 2014, I thought maybe it was a done deal. Well, it is a done deal, but uh, I still have to do the final rewrite. Okay. And this is this is cleaning up stuff, uh, looking at you know characters, and doing some fine tuning. So probably. I've got a month's worth of writing left, but it's nothing that I can't do. I've, I've done the hard work already. Okay, great. 
Well, again, Thomas King's latest book is The Inconvenient Indian, A Curious Account of Native People in North America, and it's available now via Anchor Canada, a division of Random House. And he'll be reading from it at the Eden Mills Writers' Festival this Sunday, September 15th at 12.30 in the afternoon at the Sculpture Garden in the beautiful village of Eden Mills. You can learn more about all of this at randomhouse.ca and edenmillswritersfestival.ca. Thomas, it was truly an honor to get to speak with you again, and I I thank you for your time. Thanks very much. Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at cfru.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.